we're still in Colossians. We're coming close to the end of Colossians. And some of you are probably going, woohoo. We've been here for a while. Um, and and it's, it's really been a great book because it's talking to us about being complete, complete in all aspects of our life, being complete internally as an individual, being complete in my workplace, being complete in the marketplace, being complete in my home with my family. And part of the process of being complete is in communication. And communication is more than just expressing some words. There's a a lot to being an effective communicator, especially when it comes to our family and friends. It's not just that we throw words out there and get the wording right, but we have to have the, the right inflection in our voice. Our body language has to match what we're saying in order for us to be good communicators. And even if you get all of those components right, you can still be misunderstood in what you've just said. And, and the reason for that is, is because as, we're, as we do life, there's one thing that we're always doing. We're always interpreting what's going on around us. You're doing that right now. You're interpreting what's Pastor Ken going to say. You're interpreting my introduction and you're saying to yourself, is he saying something that is really valuable to me and do I really want to take the next 35, 40, 65, 70 minutes... And listen to what he has to say. Has he really gotten my attention yet? You are interpreting what I am saying. I'm interpreting you. So when you kind of kick back and you're doing this and your head's doing this, I'm interpreting that you found a a safe place to have a nap on Sunday morning. (laughs) Part of the problem in communication, though, is that we, we say words that somebody else maybe interprets differently than what we are using them as. They define them differently than the way we define them. And that is in the communication process. And so one of the good tools that we need to learn in our communication is when somebody uses a word that kind of maybe um, we go like, huh, that didn't feel right. We need to ask, when you said that, what did you mean by that? Because that helps to them to define the word that they're using and helps you to understand and get on the same page that they're on when it comes to communicating. You know, it it really takes wisdom to know how to have an open-door communication with those that we're engaged in with meaningful dialogue. Now, just imagine this. A husband comes home from work, and he's going to communicate to his wife and children. And here's his communication. He comes in with a list. I'd like a pot roast dinner with cobbler, berry cobbler, for dessert. I don't want there to be any unnecessary dialogue at the dinner table that's going to interrupt my consumption of the food I have. After dinner, I do not want to be disturbed as I'm watching NCAA college basketball. At halftime, I'd like a cold beverage and hot popcorn. And then when I'm done with the game, I would like to retire to my place of sleep. I'd like to go in and rest deeply without any intrusions into my life. I want to be able to get my beauty rest so I wake up refreshed in the morning. And that's the communication that the husband brings. Now, we would go, that's not really communicating. All he's done is brought a list of things that he wants. In order to have 
meaningful dialogue and communication, it's a two-way street. It's, it's the intent of the heart to listen deeply to the things that are being said and the way that the body language is being presented. And all that takes place within the family unit if you really want to have a really deep, meaningful communication with those people that you love the most. There's a generation, they've been dubbed the millennial generation. And um, from where I stand, as a guy who does communication, um, they are losing the art of one-on-one, face-to-face personal communication. Because they all pull out their phones. I mean, you just watch them when they are, wherever they are, it doesn't matter. I mean, they're walking down the street and they're doing this. I've seen some video clips of people on their phones doing this. And, and they, they're not watching where they fall into ponds. They run into signs. They, they hit a car on the crosswalk. And I actually read that people who are, who are doing this and texting and walking at the same time, that in the last year there's been like a half a dozen people who've been killed because they weren't watching what they were doing while they were texting. And, and this, this millennial generation is really great at it. I mean, their thumbs just fly. They smoke come off that thing. But that's how they communicate to each other. They do it with texting and with Twitter and with tweaking and all the rest of those other things that they do that I have no idea what it means. It sounds naughty to me, but I know they're doing them. And, and so they don't, have, they don't have these personal interactions with other people. And the problem with, with that generation is, is that we're not standing back and going like, oh, that's really bad. We're all going like, oh, wow, I can do that too. And so we start... The generations above them are starting to do all this stuff too. And we're doing all this kind of stuff and we're losing the ability to have interpersonal relationships and face-to-face conversations. Now, some of you are going like, hey, when I do the texting and all the rest of that other stuff, you know what? What's the big, big deal? Because it's keeping me from getting into conflict. Well, you just keep on thinking that happy thought because it isn't keeping you from getting into conflict or trouble probably creates more in your life because what happens is is when you send a message now the person that receives it has to put the their own inflection into it they have to kind of read maybe what your body language would be like if they received that text and and the other problem with it is is it really hampers our ability to have this conversation with god because that's what prayer is prayer is us having a conversation with God. We're talking to God. God's talking to us. And I think that maybe this new generation of, of millennials, what they want to do is they want to text their requests to God. And at the end, they'll just put an LOL at the end and a DSL and an MMT and whatever else those things mean, and a bunch of emojis on there, happy face, thumbs up, and all the rest of that spot. And then they'll put a little PS and say, you know, whenever you can get around to it, just text me back my answer, uh, your answer to my prayer. It, it, it just is like, okay, so how do we do this? Because the meaning of prayer is simply that we spend time in conversation with our Heavenly Father. And when we do that, what God does is he opens up doors for us and gives us wisdom in the process. And so our study in Colossians is actually coming to that. We're in Colossians 4, and we're going to look to begin with with verses 2 through 4. And this is what it says. Continue steadily in prayer, steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 
And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on the account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now, the, the idea of this steadfast, continual prayer is probably a little daunting to most of us because we have this concept that, that what Paul and God is asking us to do is to get into this, this prayer time where we're spending enormous amounts of prayer in our day. And we're already uh, burning the candle at both ends. We wake up early in the morning in order to get prepared to go to work uh, some people have to drive a long distance maybe because the work they do is out of town. Uh, they have to get kids ready to go to school. They have to get themselves prepared for, for work. And so we're up early and we're doing all the busy work and we're doing this stuff. And so when we read something like this, we're thinking to ourselves, where am I going to find the time to spend that much time to be steadfast and continually in prayer because it's a daunting task. And then if you add to that, uh, out of 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul said to the Thessalonian church, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now you're looking at this verse along with the verse in Colossians, and you're going, pray without ceasing. Or as my uh, roommate in college used to say, pray without sleeping. And and we think that this is a, a, a place where we go. But the posture that Paul's calling to in both of those verses isn't a posture of our body on our knees. It's a posture of our heart. That's what he's calling us to. And so it would look more like something like this, is, is that you start your day off with when you open up your eyes, your first thought is to God. And, and it's just a, a simple thanks for this day that you've prepared for me. You've got something in store for me to do today. And so, God, I want you to be a part of every aspect of my day. Before my feet hit the ground, that's the prayer that I pray. God, wherever I go, whatever I do, may I speak on your behalf. May I be in your moment. May I see the divine appointments that you bring into my life so that I can speak into them, so that I can be a part of what's going on. And then we get up and we do all of our stuff. And and that literally, would that take 15, 20 seconds? And it's really easy. We start off our day, and, and that's being steadfast and continually in prayer as we start off our day like that. And then as we're going, we may even throw in a prayer. Is there somebody that needs prayer today, God? Bring them to my mind. When I see somebody, if they need, if, if I think they need prayer, place it on my heart. And, and so we just walk through our day, and all of a sudden we're walking along or we're busy doing our work, and all of a sudden there's a, a, a name that we know that comes to our mind. I always believe that that's God bringing that person to my memory for me to lift them up in prayer. And I may not even know what's going on. And and so the prayer is just simply, God, I don't know why you've brought this person into my mind, but you want me to pray for him. So I just start to pray and I ask the Spirit to reveal to me what it is that, that needs to be prayed about. And then I go on, and I've got more work to do, and I'm doing stuff. And then I drive downtown, and I'm driving through. And one of the people in the church drives by, and I see him, and I go, Okay, God, you know where they're going. You know what they're doing. Be with them in whatever process they're going through, whatever appointment they have, whatever they're doing. 
And it's just that whole aspect as we go through our day. And so at the end of the day, when we lay our head on our pillow and we're about ready to fall into sleep, I call that the, the God-aware moment because you're, you're letting go of the day and you're ready to go into sleep. And it seems like we are more spiritually aware and keen at those moments. Right when you're waking up and right when you're falling asleep, I am more aware of God's presence. And so it's at that moment where I just thank God. I thank God for my wife. I thank God for my family. I thank God for my church family. And I just start going through all the things of my day where God... And so that is what it looks like when somebody is steadfast and continual in prayer. And that's what Paul's saying to us. That's what praying without ceasing is all about. And, and the great thing is, is that when you start to get into that pattern of that kind of prayer, all of a sudden you're going to find yourself longing to be in a place where you can slip away for 15, 20, 30, 45 minutes where you can then get into the extended prayer time where you can have a con- longer conversation with God, more intimate conversation with God. And so you find a quiet place where you can get on your knees and you can pray. But it, it comes out of that. And that's what God's calling for us to do. But I also want you to know that prayer is also conditional. It's not unconditional. The unconditional part of God is his love for us. What does that look like? In other words, when I come to faith through Christ and I enter in and I've been adopted by God into this thing called God's family, God's unconditional love to me is expressed this way. If I sin and if I disobey God and if I mess up and I make a mess of stuff, God does not remove any of his love from me. It's still there. It's fully constant, full all the time. And if I'm doing the right thing, I've been obedient. I've had some victories in my life and I feel like I've been walking in the righteous path for at least the last day. God doesn't heap on more love. God, we get all of God's love that we'll ever need. We get no more and we never get any less. It's always constant. It's always there. It's always full to the brim. That is called unconditional love because it doesn't matter what my condition is. God's going to love me anyway. Prayer, on the other hand, is conditional. The Bible tells us in in, in several places that there is a condition to God answering our prayer. And so one of the ones that is my favorite is John chapter 15, verse 7, where Jesus says that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be granted to you. The problem is a lot of people don't read the first part of that verse. They just come to the last part of that verse where they see, where ask whatever you will and it will be granted to you. And so they think that prayer is unconditional, that I go to God and I can ask God for whatever I would like and he is obligated to grant it to me because that's what the word says. And there are a lot of disappointed people walking around in church because they've been praying these prayers and, and they're expecting God to answer their prayers. And so they come away from it going like either God's on vacation or he's got his earbuds in and he's not listening anymore. He's listening to some kind of praise and worship from Hillsong. And, and so he, he's not paying attention because he's not answering my prayer. But when you go back to the beginning of this verse, Jesus makes it really clear that our, that our prayer to him has a condition because that first word sets the condition, if. 
If you abide in my word, and my words abide in you. In other words, if Christ is in me, and I'm spending time understanding, meditating, reading his word on a daily basis, letting it soak into my life, and then I start to live, it's not just getting it in, but it's living and participating in the word of God. Then when I start to pray, God's going like, now you're on the right track. Now you're doing the right thing. You got it. And listen, I am going to grant to you these things, because when we start to meditate on the word of God, when we start to have Christ dwell in our hearts when we are in communion and communion with with God and in conversations, all of a sudden the requests that we were wanting to pray five years ago about getting a new car fall to the wayside and we start to look around and we have God's heart in things and we start to pray for people who need Jesus, people who need healing, people whose marriages are in trouble, people who are in financial trouble. We pray for ourselves. We pray for our children. Because all of a sudden we've got an understanding of God's, God's heart in all this. And then if you go to 1 Peter 3, 7, you know, a couple of weeks ago we talked about husbands and wives and their roles and everything. And Peter, in his letter, when he wrote it to the church, he also addressed husbands and wives. Now I'm just going to hit verse 7 because in verse 7 it says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you, with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Oh, man, all the husbands are going like, I should have stayed home today. <laughs> if I would have known he was going to say that, I don't like that verse. But the truth is, is that the God has given to us as men who are married. He has given to us our wives. And, and we, you just look at the verse and it just basically live with them in an understanding way and honor them. You guys, if you're wondering why your prayers aren't getting past the ceiling, take a look at what's going on in your marriage. First of all, are you honoring your wife? Are you living with her with understanding, an understanding heart, not being belligerent or mean. But but God says if you do this, your prayers are going to be heard. But if you are not honoring your wife, you're not living in understanding with her, your prayers are going nowhere, dude. All right, man. It's time to become a man-man. You can't be a man-boy anymore. A man boy is, is somebody who has an adult man body but still thinks like a teenage boy. This verse is calling you to grow up and be a man man. Take care of your wife. Take care of your children. Pray for them. You do that, you're going to be a righteous man of God and he will answer your prayer. But by the way, just let me help you understand this, ladies. Yeah, you knew it was coming, didn't you? You're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Well, here it's going to drop. Because conditional prayer applies to all of us. Second Chronicles 7.14. God said, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. You, you see what the conditions are? There's three of them right there. You come to God with a humble heart. In humility, you approach God, not in arrogance or pride. You owe this to me, God. That's prideful. We come to God in humility. 
seek his face. In other words, I'm seeking to find out what God's will is. I'm seeking to find out what God has in store for me. I'm seeking to find out what God wants me to do. And so I'm seeking with all of my diligence to find out who God is. And then we... All right, anybody here not a sinner? Amen to that, right? This is a 12-step program for sinners. Hi, I'm Ken and I'm a sinner. You guys got to get a little bit quicker, I know. Let's try it again, have another coffee. Hi, my name's Ken and I'm a sinner. See, we're all in this together. And so what it's calling us to do is to repent of that sin. That's what it means to turn away is to repent. Repent is turning away from the wickedness and now turning to follow God in all of his statutes and his um, commands and to be obedient with my life. When we do that, he says, I will hear your prayer from heaven. I'm in heaven and my ear will be attuned to you. And then when I hear my your prayer, I will forgive your sin and I will heal your land. You see, there's there's three specific areas, and there's probably more. These are just three that I picked out that tell us that prayer is a conditional thing. Our part in it, so God can do his part through it. And that's what Paul's calling us to do. That's where he wants us to be. So what's the, what's the process? Because if we're going to be continually in prayer and we've got this going on and we get meet all of these conditions that God's called us to do, what is the end result of it? Well, it says so right here in the passage we're looking at. That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, that I may make it clear. You see, we, we wonder why people don't come to Christ. Why do people not listen when they, when they hear the word of God? Why does it seem to be kind of like water rolling off of a duck's back? Because there hasn't been the concerted prayer by the family to help in the process of preaching or teaching or declaring the word of God. I need your help. Did you know that? So if you think about this, think about this passage that through your week, when, when you get up in the morning and you start to go through your day and you think of Pastor Ken, that's God signaling to you, God give Ken the ability to preach the word about the mystery of Christ clearly. Also prepare the people's hearts to receive the word of God so that they'll be transformed by what you're teaching to us. I'm telling you, I'm not the, sh- uh, the sharpest tool in the shed. I need all the help I can get. And so when you pray for me, God imparts wisdom to me that I normally don't have. When, when you pray for your small group leaders, they need the prayer because they're also teaching the word of God. It, it, it's simple until somebody asks you a question about it. One of my favorite questions to ask people who are coming into my office on marriage, whether it's pre-marriage or marriage counseling. And the, the, you know, I always ask the question, why are you getting married or why did you get married? Because we love each other. <laughs> so I look at them and I go, remember we, uh, earlier I was talking about clear communication. All right, so would you please define love for me? They're like, well, you know, I don't know. 
And and so when you ask people questions about the word of God, I mean, it sounds simple to declare it. What does God's love look like to you? And you're like, because it says for God to love the world. What does it mean when he says he loved the world? Does that mean that he loves homosexuals, same-sex marriage people? Does he love Muslims and ISIS? I mean, does he love these people? Is that what the Bible is just telling me right now? Because I'm really having a hard time with that because my relative was killed in Afghanistan by an insurgent. And, and you're going, well, you know what? God does love the person, but he hates the sin. He doesn't hate the sinner. He hates the sin. And so, you, you know, we need to understand these things. And prayer is what's going to bring the word of God into the hearts of people. It's going to help them to understand the mystery of Christ with clarity. And it's going to help us who are, have been given the awesome responsibility and task of presenting that word to make it clear. All right, let's move on. Colossians, now we're in verses 5 through 6. It says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. When the Bible uses the word walk, it's, it's symbolic. It's symbolic in the fact that it's how we're to live our lifestyle of being under the authority and in the life of Christ. It's a symbolism that we're living our lives in this way. It, it, it's, it's an authentic relationship with Christ that is portrayed to those around us. The main message of this is that Jesus should make a difference in our lives, in how we live. It's no value of us to hear a message from the word of God and get up and say, Pastor, that was a really great message, and pat me on the back or whoever's preaching or if you hear it on the radio or YouTube or whatever and go, that was a really great message, and get up and walk out as though you'd never listened to it. It has no effect on your life. I have a book in my office that I just pulled off the shelf earlier this week that I'm going to start rereading, and I, and I think it's really pertinent to my life, and it's called The Christian Atheist. The premise behind the title of the book is there are men and women who are coming to church and participating in a setting like this, like much of of what we do here. And they hear the word of God and they sing praises about it. They probably even know verses and they can they can have the context of being in a Bible study. And yet, as they hear all of these things going on about God and what God's calling them to They live their lives as though God doesn't even exist. When we're we're called to walk in wisdom, it's that we're to walk and live according to the principles found in God's word. Live in it. Live through it. In Galatians 5, when when Paul wrote to the Galatians church, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You know, there's we hear the verses in the Bible and we pick out portions of it. 
And then we want to apply them to our lives. Like, have you heard this before? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Right? Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we, we bring that to the table in the conversation that we're having because we're going like, well, I would really like to do it, but I'm just, I just can't. I just can't get away from what I'm doing. I can't turn away. I, as much as I hate doing whatever it is over here that I shouldn't be doing, my flesh is too weak and it just falls back into that routine and it just gets hung up in there. But what the Bible tells us is that God, by his Holy Spirit, has indwelled each of us as his children to give us power and strength and authority over those sinful behaviors. And we're to walk in the Spirit. So if we're walking in the Spirit, we're living through what the Spirit is doing to us. Remember, it's not holding the hand of the Holy Spirit and walking along. It's living in my lifestyle with the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit in my life so that I don't press in on the desires of the flesh. I don't gratify myself with the sinful desires of the flesh because I'm living in the Spirit. In Ephesians 2, by the way, It's calling for action. And then Ephesians 2, it says, Therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And in here, the action we're called to is to imitate. We've we've all seen the little kids that imitate their parents. Mom and dad do something, the little kids do it. You've seen the, the commercials or the little kid that's, that's walking just like his dad, right? They, they, dread, they try to dress like their dad. They want to look like their dad. They are imitating their dad because their dad is their hero. Their dad is, is the biggest personality on the planet for them. And when they grow up, they want to be just like their dad. So they, at an early age, they start to imitate their dad. It requires an action from the child. That's what Paul is saying is be like a child and imitate God. It requires for us to have action. We're to walk, live in our lifestyle of love. That's what the word keeps calling us to do because Jesus told us that the, the unbelieving world will know that you, me, we are his disciples by the way that we, what? Love one another. The way we express love to each other is a testimony to those who are outside the community of faith. They're observing what we're doing. The way we act, the way we interact, the way we love, the way we work, the way we talk with each other becomes a testimony. It requires action. And finally, in Ephesians 2, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared long beforehand, that we should walk in them. Again, it requires us action because here's the good works that Jesus has given to us. Now we step into them. We participate with Christ in doing ministry together with Jesus. And we are in the action of doing what God has called us to do. And so when we take a look at this passage that we're looking at in Colossians, it says we are to walk, live our lives in wisdom. Now, I just want you to think about this. If someone bought a Garmin GPS navigation system for their car because they were 
directionally challenged. And they took it, they read the manual, they learned how it operated, they, they put it on their dashboard, they plugged it in, they put in the destination that they wanted to go. And then they got into the car, and they never one time looked at the screen, they turned the volume down on it so they couldn't hear the voice command of turning left or right. And they just went on their merry way. They have all the equipment to do and get to where they're supposed to be. But they're ignoring it. They bought it. And so all what you end up having is a very expensive dashboard accessory. You've replaced your fuzzy dice hanging from the mirror with a garment on your dashboard. But you pay no attention to what it has to say. And you end up getting lost. And you turn around and you go like, why did I buy this piece of junk anyway? Because look at me. I'm lost. I'm desperately lost. I have no... This is where, you know, and it's just driving me nuts. Now, okay, I do understand that sometimes even when Garmin or Siri or whoever you're talking to on your navigation system tells you to turn left and make a right and then another left, and the next thing you know, you're sitting in some farmer's field. And you're going like, that stupid thing. And it's true. You know why it's stupid? Because it was made by a man. And they're fallible. They're going to screw this thing up. They're going to get you lost. And that's the difference between a garment and God. Because God, when he gives you directions, you will get to where he wants you to go every time if you're paying attention to his directions. He will never lead you astray. You will never end up in some farmer's field. You'll never be lost in the woods, spiritually speaking, if you follow the directions that God gives you and you turn when he says turn and you pray when he says pray and you encourage when he says encourage, you will get to where God wants you to be. Let's move on. Because we're to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Now, here's the thing that I know is we all need wisdom. We need a better way to gain wisdom other than the experience of making a wrong decision. I mean, that's, you know, making bad decisions is uh, a great teacher, but we, we just don't have enough time in life to keep going down that road. And so we need to have wisdom without the bad decisions. And so the theme of this passage is just that, walking in wisdom, in God's wisdom. Paul admonishes us to live, walk, do as, not as fools, but as wise people. One thing we all need to learn is how to have greater wisdom in our walk with God. Our, our walk or our conduct is with wisdom towards outsiders. And so what does that mean? It means those outside the community of faith, those outside the church, those who are looking in. And wisdom is this, is the use of knowledge to reach worthy goals. That's what wisdom is. We, we gain all this knowledge and we pack it into our heads and it stays there. You can, you can know a lot of things. You can even have a PhD but still be unwise. Having knowledge and using knowledge are two different things completely. Wisdom, being able to take what you know and make use of it to reach a worthy goal. So wisdom in this sense has a worthy goal in view. So what's the goal of walking in wisdom towards outsiders? Proverbs 11.30 says this. 
The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. You can replace the word capture or win. Souls. You you see what it's saying here? It's saying that the goal of the wise, the goal of true wisdom, is lead people to righteousness. And we know that Christ is our righteousness. So the goal of wisdom is to lead people to Christ. That's why we need wisdom. We need to know how to lead people to Christ. When you read through the Proverbs, you will discover that wisdom is knowing and doing what is right. And I think there's a lot of people, even Christ followers, who are willing to be satisfied with gaining lots and lots of biblical knowledge. They may go to Bible studies, but they don't realize it's not enough just to know what's right. It's applying the information and the knowledge that you have. The world thinks that wisdom, for example, is that if it works, it must be the wise thing to do. If it's profitable, it's the wise thing to do. If it makes me feel good or gives me more security, it must be the wise thing to do. But some of those things are destructive. They're not wise. And so the truth is, wisdom is doing the the right thing, not just knowing what the right thing is. I also think of wisdom this way. Wisdom is seeing the things from God's perspective. How does God see this? And then responding to that according to biblical principles. That is, how am I to respond to this situation from God's viewpoint? That keeps me at the center of God's will, doing what God wants me to do, enabling me to become the person God wants me to be. God becomes the garment for my life, his wisdom. We also find... Wisdom is also found um, by letting the word of Christ settle into your soul. We looked at this uh, weeks and weeks ago in Colossians 3.16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. You understand this? Is that when we let the word... This thing right here, from the front cover to the back cover, it is the word of Christ. In John chapter 1, John declares that the word was with God and the word is God. And that through the word, everything that has been created was created. And that the word came and made his dwelling among us. And the word is the one who gave inspiration to the Holy Scriptures. And so when it says that that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, it means we are to spend time um, meditating, reading, memorizing, letting it soak into who we are. Man, I almost lost my glasses. I got to be careful. We got to let the word of God just soak into our lives. Because there's a richness about it. Because when we do that, then we'll be able to teach and admonish, help people with wisdom. Do you want wisdom? If you really want wisdom in knowing how to raise your children, how to be a better spouse, how to be a better employee, how to to talk to your neighbors who are far, far from Christ. If you want to know how wisdom to To have the wisdom to do that, you have to spend time letting Christ's word dwell in you richly. Let's move on. 
It's, Paul goes on to say, well, in, you know, that's taking, we need to take the most of, of our, every opportunity that's laid before us because in that then let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each p- person. It, it's still walking in wisdom. Wisdom is the, the, the beginning of all of this. And so wisdom is knowing what to do for the glory of God when the rule book runs out. It's knowing how to become all things to all men without compromising holiness and truth. It's, it is create, creatively and tactfully and with thoughtfulness. It's having a feel for the moment and having an eye for what people need and want in order to buy up opportunities for God so that we can be wiser in our behavior. So how do we buy up these opportunities? Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. I take this to mean that when we talk about Christ, when we talk about life in the community of faith, that our speech should be as appetizing as possible. When food is not salted, it tastes bland. People don't want to eat it. It's unappetizing. Our speech is not supposed to be like that. When I was just in my first, last church, in my last church, within the first couple of months of being there, this elderly couple in our church um, said, Ken, we'd like to have you come over for lunch. And I'm going, yeah, that would be great. I'd love to do that. And so I go over, and and um, she has made this incredible beef stew soup. Just, oh, I mean, I'm just, I'm looking at it, and I'm starting, you know, how you, your mouth starts to water, and you're, Kind of wiping the drool off your face, and you don't want to be rude. And, and then I could smell she had an apple pie baking in the oven. And I was like, man, I've had a home run today. Homemade buns and soup and apple pie. And I saw her whipping cream, and I'm just like, oh, this is going to be a glorious day. We sat down. They asked me to bless the food. I did. They gave me a big bowl of soup, and I took a sip of it, you know. And I went like, oh, man, this thing needs salt and pepper and about a thousand other spices. (laughs) But I didn't say anything. I ate the soup. It It really didn't taste like much. There was no seasoning in it. And I thought, okay. I can get past the soup because we got apple pie and whipped cream coming. And so she cuts me a big old slab, like a quarter of the pie. And then she puts a big whipped cream on it. And she brings it and hands it to me. I'm just looking. And I smear the whipped cream all over and I cut a piece off and I shove it in my mouth. And I went like, whoa, there's no sugar. No sugar. No sugar in the pie and no sugar in the whipped cream. (laughs) Little did I know that they were both diabetics. And so they had cut salt and sugar completely out of their diet. I live on sugar and salt. I have a salt lick in my office. I have a bag of brown sugar in there, too. I about died. 
I found excuses not to go back for lunch because it wasn't appetizing. But what Paul's telling us is our lives are to be the sugar and salt, if I can say it that way. The salt that, that brings out the God flavors in life to other people. We're to bring the God flavor so that they're hungry, so that they're drooling, so that they have an appetite for the things of God. That's what he wants us to do. We're to, to develop the ability to speak about Jesus in such a way that it is an appetizer to people. And they want more. Jesus identified him that way. He said to, in John chapter 4, he said, I'm the living water. And in John chapter 6, he said, I'm the bread of life. And I'm going to tell you something. Every person that walks on this planet, and particularly, more importantly, every person that walks in Lander has, is looking for something to satisfy the longing in their heart. And the only thing that does that is the living water and the bread of life, Jesus. And we're supposed to be the ones that are, are bringing the flavor. We're the little lemon squeeze into the water. We're the little salt on the food or the sugar in the pie. So people are wanting to know more about this so that their appetite is built up and they can't wait to get more. We have a lot of spiritually minded people in our community. A lot of spiritual people. The problem is their spirituality does not include Jesus one little lick. And so they keep going and they're looking for other places to satisfy that longing that they have. And they're never going to find it because they don't go to the right place. They're not going to the right well and they're not cutting the right bread. What they've got is just emptiness and no satisfaction. So Paul's calling us by our speech to let it salt, let it be gracious, let it be the drawing factor to these things. Let it, let it do this in people's lives because when, when we kind of salt the hay, people are really desiring to know more about God. At the last part of verse 6, it says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The point is simple. Each person is different and every situation is different. You will not find any conversation exactly the same when you start talking about spiritual things. But here's the good news. It's the same gospel and it's the same Jesus. And there are countless ways to serve that meal to people that we run into. That's why we need wisdom. That's why we need to know how to address outsiders, because that person that you talked to last week is going to be different than the person you're going to talk to this week. You can't approach this person like you did that person. But you still have the same Jesus. You still have the same gospel. And so you need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and of God to know how to serve this platter over here so it's appetizing to this person. That's the message that we've been called to today. In order for us to accomplish as a church what God's called us to do in this community, we need each other deeply. 
You know, I want to say more now than ever, but we've always needed each other. Not more now than ever. We just need each other all the time. I need you. John needs you. Small group leaders need you. The elders need you. Whoever is bringing the word of God, we need you to be praying for us so that when we open our mouths, we, we declare the mysteries of Christ and they're clear to those who are receiving it. We need to be praying for wisdom from God so we know how to interact with those who are far from God so that the message we brings, it bring to them is clarity. It is about Jesus. And that we do it in a way that is seasoned with salt and it's full of grace and truth. That's, that's our call together. So I'm asking you this week, here's my ask. Will you pray? Will you just start your day before your feet hit the ground and just start to pray and ask God to be with you through your whole day? And then as you're going through your day, when somebody's name comes to your mind, you believe that God brought that person to your mind and you pray. And if you don't know how to pray, you ask God to pray with you and teach you how to pray for them. Then if any time you drive by this building, whether it's out there on the highway or down this block, or it's over there, or it's on the west end of town, because you drive by this building no matter where you're at in this town. Pray for your leaders. We need it. We need wisdom. We need strength. We need help. And then when you are meeting with those people outside, start looking for opportunities. Make the best use of your time with the opportunities that God brings into your life with the people who you rub shoulders with that you would have wisdom in knowing how to talk to an outsider about the reality of Jesus so that you're salting the conversation and they're drawn and are hungry for more. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you that you don't ask us to go out and do this on our own. You don't say, just get out there and do something. You tell us that you're going to be right there with us. You're going to help us the whole the whole way, but we do need to incorporate you into the process. We need to pray and ask you for guidance and understanding. We need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray that the message, every time it goes out, comes with clarity and there's understanding in it. We need to pray for your help through every aspect of our day. And we need to ask you to help us to have wisdom when we're talking with those around us so that we know how to talk to them, so that we know how to salt the conversation, so that they come to Jesus who is the living water and will satisfy the deepest longing in their soul, who is the bread of life and will fill those gaps in their lives that they so desperately are looking for something else to fill them and that we would be your men and women making a difference in your kingdom here on earth. We pray all these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.